Hello and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. My name is Jen Snelson. And my name is Lucas Stock. And this is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Thank you for joining us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life and the life of Christians as we strive for unity amongst our diversity as members of Christ's church. On today's Christians of History episode, we are going for the fences. We're swinging big. Uh, Lucas is going to share the life and times of St. Thomas Aquinas. Why don't you take it away, man? Yes, the angelic doctor or the universal doctor, both of which are what he's known as now. And this is, I was thinking about it. We, We have talked about Augustine, so... I, I go back and forth, like, technically, I guess we have to say Augustine is a bigger influence, has more shaped all of, of Western Christian history, Protestant, Catholic, old, new, but Aquinas is a really close second, I think, <laughs> like, just in terms of the sheer numbers of people who, whether they realize it or not, are directly influenced by his way of thinking and his theology um, and even those who aren't necessarily like what we might think of as Thomists or, you know, people who are following him, like it's, it's crazy. Just... So I had an, I had an interesting thought and mm-hmm. I, this is totally sidebar, not planned. I'll keep it brief. Um, but another really interesting analogy, you know how we've used uh, standing on the shoulders of those who have come before us, or we've talked about mm-hmm. like a river that's flowing and we're following down this stream that has been flowing since Christ as the source um very similarly music music has a way of of influencing people right like let's say there's a band Mm -hmm. that exists today and one of their influences is you know led zeppelin and black sabbath and guns and roses or whatever well those people were also like led zeppelin guns and roses like those musicians were influenced by somebody else and so like even today like when we when we talk about the types of music that we have the genres that you're into um you don't always know I mean, it's almost impossible to know all the people that were influenced down the stream of Mm -hmm. musical influence. And very similarly, uh, the same is true of the church, because just like you said, I'm sure a lot of people don't recognize and realize that they are being influenced by Aquinas. Um, You know, I don't know. That that was just a thought that I had came to mind. Sorry, take it for whatever it's worth. But anyway, I'll shut up. (laughs) Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I like that might be worth exploring elsewhere. But as far as St. Thomas goes, he was born approximately 1225 uh, near Naples, Italy, to an aristocratic family. He was born in a castle, which is, you know, auspicious beginnings. And from a young age, partially because of, you know, the station that he was born into, he seemed destined for a, you know, pretty comfortable and significant influential life as, as a nobleman. Um, this was also partially due to his extreme intelligence, which even as a, as a kid was like evident and obvious to everyone around him. And there were apparently even, there was even a hermit (laughs) in town that basically prophesied that he was going to be like the world's greatest teacher. Um, Which, you know, he kind of was, so I guess it's true. Um, and the as he was growing up, the Benedictine monks that were basically his teachers 
encouraged his family to send him to the University of Naples, where he enrolled as a student at the age of 11. And this was where, you know, the, the, the ball kind of got started rolling in terms of the, the future that Aquinas was going to have. He got exposed to what was then a newly rediscovered for the West, the philosophy of, of Aristotle, which in the West had basically been completely lost. And then through um, uh, Eastern Christian in, in Greek and Muslim in Arabic, uh, writings began to migrate back West. And then his philosophy was kind of being re-evaluated or, or rediscovered and reappreciated by people in the West, in Western universities. Um, so he gets exposed to this. And he also gets introduced to the um, Dominican friars, the, the religious order, the Dominicans, the order of preachers. Uh, um, I forget what that is in Latin, but it, you'll sometimes see Catholic priests at the end of their name. They have OP. That's, that's order of preachers, but in Latin, it just happens to be the same um, acronym as it is in English. But so th at this time, the Dominicans were, were pretty new. They were a pretty new order. Um, and they, they were they were mendicant preachers. They were traveling preachers who were who were committed to vows of poverty and simplicity. Um, very different than the aristocratic nobility that Aquinas' family hailed from. And so as he's at university, Aquinas joins the Dominicans as a novice, which was a big, dis, you know, not just different than where he came from, but his family was extremely disappointed and tried to change his mind. And, and they really tried to change his mind <laughs> To, they, they actually kidnapped him and imprisoned him in their family castle for two years trying to convince him to give up, you know, this stupid idea of becoming a Dominican friar. Now, I feel like right here we should interject. If there are any children listening, uh, your parents' punishment is nowhere near as bad as this. So that's all I'm saying. <laughs> you, you could be imprisoned in a castle. Uh, so maybe just, you know, take it easy. I don't know. Hey, but, you know. Castles are nice, or maybe, I don't know. But so during this time of, of imprisonment by his family, um, Aquinas continued his studies, um, and eventually they let him go. He, he was able to, to get out, and he immediately rejoined the Dominicans. And he was confirmed as a, as a full member, um, and pretty much right away, partially probably to avoid further run-ins with his family, he, he left Italy and traveled to the University of Cologne, where he studied under Albert the Great, who is, is also a well-known, significant scholastic theologian who was, um, you know, hard at work studying the, the Aristotelian philosophy that was making a, a comeback in the West, and, and, uh, um, is apparently in class, uh, once said of Thomas, who was who was really apparently known for being shy and chubby, that one day this dumb ox will make a bellowing that will be heard throughout the world, <laughs> um, which is a great quote, <laughs> and also again it's true. <laughs> uh, he did. He has. So um, it's interesting to to you know that that I feel like I think I think that sort of prophetic little you know quip that Albert the Great has is a little more um, well-attested historically, it seems, than the, the hermit prophesying before his birth. But it is interesting that at this point in the story, he's had two people prophesying that he's going to make a huge impact. Um, and uh, 
so after being at Cologne for a little bit, um, Aquinas moved on to the University of Paris, um, which at the time was the was was by far the um, the, the the best, the biggest, the most significant university in the world. And at this time, at the University of Paris, there was a big controversy between the Dominicans who were there and the Franciscans, which which are a different religious order at the time. Um, and they were basically fighting and disagreeing over whether or not Aristotle had any value for Christians doing theology, for Christian philosophy, for Christian thought. The Franciscans were, generally speaking, that they, they preferred Plato and Platonic philosophy and kind of rejected Aristotle. And the Dominicans were generally favorable towards Aristotle and, and argued that he could be used, um, you know, uh, productively for for Christian thought. So this is kind of just to say the context that, that Thomas is coming into as he's continuing his studies, as he's, um, as, as we'll see, um, Aristotle plays, is a very, is very important for, um, for his, his method and also his, his theology in general. Um, and we see it just, it's, it's in the air as he's traveling both in the university system at the time, as well as, as a Dominican friar. Um, he's, he's just, being, he's sort of imbibing this Aristotelian atmosphere, um, and so it was. It was at Paris that he started his teaching career in 1256 as a master of theology. And um, while he was he was at Paris teaching, he wrote his Summa Contra Gentiles, um, which is basically an apologetic work defending the Christian faith against critiques from the Muslim world. And he also started his Summa Theologica, or Summa Theologica, which is definitely what he's most known for massive magnum opus uh systematic theology actually unfinished um but um just this is kind of how he really made his mark he, he also throughout his life he wrote biblical commentaries he wrote commentaries on aristotelian uh writings um he wrote all kinds of stuff like like very productive scholarly theologian um and in, in 1273, that kind of all came to a stop. He had some sort of experience while saying mass one day. Um, and it's not really clear what happened. Like there, there's some like more um, maybe naturalist uh, theories that he had, he had a stroke or something like that. Um, there are other theories that it was some sort of mystical experience. It's, it's said that he may have received the stigmata, which is the sort of, um, you'll read about it in, in Catholic, uh, medieval, like mystics, where the, the wounds of Christ actually appear on your body, um, when, when, you know, as a result of, of really intense mystical, uh, contemplation of, of God. So, so something happened and, and he completely stopped writing. He just dropped everything saying that everything he had written now seemed to him like straw compared to what he had seen. Like he was just done. And then it was only a few months later in March, 1274 that, that he died. Um, so that's sort of an overview of his life and his, his theology, his, his impact, his writings, are much, much, much too big. Like, there's just too much. <laughs> and too, they're too intricate, they're too detailed, they're too, too wide to, to cover everything that, that's worth knowing in, in just an overview. So I decided to just sort of 
pick a few of what seem to be his most distinctive ideas and that really form like the the core of his of his theological legacy in the church throughout history and to today um to kind of give like a, a a taste of of what thomas is like in terms of his thought um so one of the one of the big things that he's doing is he's re- and, and and this is sort of what's going on in the medieval world in, in theology in general but he is uh, wrestling with trying to figure out what is the relationship between faith and reason. And especially we see, we see this in the way that he uses Aristotelian philosophy and natural theology um, to, to do theology. Um, so, so we see this, this complementary relationship of faith and reason rather than, than faith versus reason. It's faith and reason. They're, they're both... Um, from God. They're both given to humanity by God for the purpose of um, pursuing knowledge of God. They, they don't do the same things. You know, you, you, you can't know God without faith, with, with just reason. He's not saying that. Um, but, but he is saying that, that reason is, is a faculty given to people by God uh, as a gift to be used, right? Um, and, and one of the reasons that that reason can play a role in theology and not just in like natural knowledge, like learning how to do physics or how to do math or whatever. Um, but, but even in, in doing theology is, is he has this idea of, of analogy between the creator God and creation. Um, creation, you know, sort of by way of analogy reflects God. So it's not, it's not completely cut off from him and, and separate, you know, separate so far from him that that there's no way anything natural can can point us to God or anything like that. But God basically, uh, kind of like an artist signing their work, God basically put his stamp on the natural world as its creator, you know, as the one who made it. Um, and we, using our reason that God has given us, um, can reflect on the natural world and see these reflections of God. This, the, these analogies that point us back to God. Um, and that's part of what, what faith and reason are doing in theology. Um, another big idea, um, or, or at least something that, that Thomas did um, that was pretty important, was his uh, arguments for the existence of God, which have come to be known as the five ways. They're basically these, these five short little arguments that, that he expands on a lot more in detail. Um, but that that are that are uh, logical and reasonable arguments um, for God's existence. So we kind of get a taste of of what what it's like for this reason and, and theology interplay, right? So uh, briefly, I'm not going to go into the details, um, but the five ways are one: um, the fact that the world and everything in it is in motion requires that someone or something provided that initial movement you know um we can think of like newton's laws an object in motion stays in motion Uh, well something has to start the motion right so the fact that there is motion means that there needed to be an original mover right you could you can't just have this thing's in motion and something set that in motion and something set that in motion and something set that in motion because you're just going to go on for infinity and there's no beginning so the fact that, that there is motion in the world is actually an argument that God exists because there needed to be some sort of original mover. 
you might have heard the phrase like the unmoved mover it's a very aristotelian kind of greek philosophical phrase like like it's that idea like god is that unmoved mover um two similarly every every effect needs a cause so so every time something happens an effect happens there's a cause you know i i i spill my water the ground is wet i move my vocal cords the sound travels through the air whatever um so again there needs to be this there needs to be a cause that's that was the initial cause or else you just have this infinite regress of causes 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 but there needs to be a starting point um another argument the third way is that um humans animals you know the the natural world exist um contingently like we we don't need to exist it's possible for me to not exist or for you to not exist um but if every if every being is contingent there needs to be a being that is necessary there needs to be a being that has to exist or else nothing would ever bring the contingent beings into existence um and again that points us back to what is that initial necessary being that caused everything, that set everything in motion? It's God. Um, also, values like truth or goodness or or justice or right and wrong, they have they exist in the natural world, but they have to be sourced in something. They're not just floating independently in the natural world, but they actually have their source in God. They come from God. And if we say something on earth is good, we're, we're comparing it to how it measures up to the goodness that exists in God. Um, and then fifth is the teleological argument, which, which is a fancy way of saying the, basically the argument from design. You look around in the world, things fit together in terms of, of ecosystems and the laws of physics and, um, you know, like food, food chains and everything. They are our cells, our organs, you know, everything uh, exists for a purpose or, or we can, I guess we could say, you know, it, it seems to exist for a purpose. It seems to be working together in such a way that that indicates it was designed. Right. Kind of, you know, we're probably all familiar with with this argument. Um, so along with these arguments for God's existence, um, another thing just to kind of close in terms of, of pointing out pieces of his thought is is Thomas um, is, is kind of famous for for advocating for divine simplicity, which is the idea. If we say God is simple, it means he has no parts. He has no body. He's not made up of these individual elements that are compounded together the way we are right we have um we have our soul we have our body we have um you know carbon and hydrogen and and all these elements that are inside of us that come together to to form our being god is not like that he's simple um, there's way more to say about that but i'm going to leave it there for the sake of, of just giving a very brief flyover quick overview of sort of the um maybe most unique, most distinctive, most significant uh, things that, that, that Thomas contributes. So that's kind of where I want to wrap it up. Um, that, that's, that's Thomas's life. That's Thomas's, uh, some of Thomas's major contributions. And he continues to be a, a, serious, uh, a serious influence on Roman Catholic theology, you know, like officially, you know, he's a doctor of the church, 
like I mentioned, I mentioned earlier, you know, the angelic doctor, the universal doctor. He's he's uh, revered as a saint by not just Roman Catholics. He's you know the Dominicans are still a a, a big order. Dominican friars are are still present in the world and and you know continuing on Thomas's work of of doing theology and education and all that stuff and um, really a, a a really remarkable person for for one person to contribute so much um it you know it, it's it's uh it's tough to overstate how big of a deal thomas is even if we don't find you know every individual thing he says compelling um it, it, for us in the west it's it's pretty much impossible to get away from his influence like like augustine which is why i kind of uh compared them in the beginning um, so yeah, that's, that's Thomas Aquinas. I mean, I would say just, just pick up the Summa. It's so interesting. It's so, I didn't even talk about it in detail, but it's, it's so much fun to read. It's so interesting. Um, and you can find it online if you, you know, or, or probably in your library, but it's, uh, it's awesome. So yeah, that's Thomas Aquinas. Sweet. Well, thank you, Lucas, for taking the time to uh, do the research and talk about his life. And thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of the Doxology Podcast. If you would like to connect with us, you can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast. You're always welcome to email us, too, at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We welcome your feedback, questions, episode ideas, uh, Christians of history that you would like us to cover. Uh, But in the end, we just want to hear from you. So until next time, peace. Peace.